Hello, I'm Dr. Sam Hancock of the Emerald Planet and Emerald Planet TV. We come to you on a week-to-week -week basis from Washington, D.C. in the United States as we look around the globe in 144 different nations looking for those thousand best practices, the technology, services, and products that are making a difference as we move through the 21st century. And as we have a planet of 9 billion people by 2038 and possibly 12 to 13 billion by the end of this century, how are we going to be able to take care of all these people on planet Earth? And that's what Emerald Planet's all about. We come to you looking at the solutions, the best practices from around the globe as we create the Emerald Planet. Hello, welcome to the Emerald Planet. We're making a difference as we move through the 21st century. See the long-term impacts of climate change. So we're glad to have you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with us again on the Emerald Planet TV. In these very dangerous times of pandemics and natural disasters, we need to look forward as far as where we're going, where we've been, and how we can address the issues of the day. We have a gentleman who's been doing this for many years, a true expert and internationally renowned. He is Dr. Thomas E. Lovejoy. He is a university professor in the Department of Environmental Sciences and Policy. Also, he is a scientific director for the Institute for Sustainability uh, Earth at George Mason University. Tom, welcome to the Emerald Planet TV. Well, great to be back with you. Glad to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about your Institute for Sustainable Earth and why George Mason University. So it's one of three new institutes that were started about a year and a half ago. Uh, and this one is all wrapped around the notion of charting a more sustainable course for humanity. Uh, and that's a big, complicated question. Uh, and it turns out we have 500 faculty who are interested in contributing to this. So the topic we're going to talk about today will be the subject of the first of some institute seminars starting next week. That's absolutely fantastic. Uh, looking at this, this pre to prevent future pandemics, no company should source from recently deforested land. Uh, and of course, that's from any source. Why is that coming to the fore now that we've never heard this before? So the public hasn't heard it before, but it's certainly existed in both the conservation and the epidemiological community. And, you know, we tend to talk about these things as natural disasters, but they're as much man-made as they're natural. And there are two to four new viruses that are identified every year any one of those could become a pandemic and they turn up because we have destroyed more forests built a big highway into a forest uh, been trading wild animals have wild animal markets for food uh, and it's just a matter of time before one of those pops into human populations and then gets out of hand now, looking at Brazil, and we're going to be talking about uh, Amazonia, the Amazon Basin. Uh, why are you focused on Brazil, and what does that have to do with the future 
triggers for maybe pandemics? So I've spent my life working in the Amazon and on the conservation of the Amazon, but little known to many people is that uh, when I was doing my PhD studying birds, I was also studying the arthropod-borne viruses that they were carrying, like St. Louis encephalitis. So I know these pathogens are circulating naturally in these environments and disturbing them often sets up opportunities for them to spill over into human populations. And I'll tell you a great story about that later, uh, about yellow fever. I tell you, this is something I'm looking forward to. But tell us a little more about the Amazon. It's such a huge area. Uh, even in terms of South America, it's a huge area, but also for the world. So the Amazon is roughly equivalent to the 48 contiguous United States. It's really big. Uh, and it encompasses eight countries. It's the largest tropical rainforest in the world. It's the single greatest repository of biological diversity in the world. Uh, it has an incredible number of distinct indigenous peoples and distinct indigenous languages. Uh, it's a biological treasure trove, easily damaged and easily flipped into a situation where it could generate a pandemic. Yeah, and we keep talking about uh, natural disasters and, and many times God gets blamed for everything, but actually most of this is actually triggered by human beings. That's completely correct. So I like to think of unnatural disasters mm -hmm. or you know, human and natural synergies creating disasters. Uh, and you're looking here at CO2 emissions from deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon. Uh, and look at 2018 and 2019. Uh, it's just going up. Uh, and that is, in fact, an invitation to some kind of disease outbreak. And the whole thing is, is that at one time it was a giant sump as far as uh, greenhouse gases and carbon. Uh, now it's emitting more than it's absorbing, is my understanding. Well, that's true. It's still, you know, its standing stock of carbon is enormous. It's like 80 billion tons of carbon. Mm. So it's really important that that stay in the living forest mm -hmm. and in all that biological diversity uh, because to value the Amazon for its carbon is like valuing a computer chip for its silicon. I see. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the, this was an amazing number that uh, came up today. One acre destroyed every one second. That's uh, unbelievable. But looking at, and we're going to go through some of these photographs. Tell us what's actually happening in the Amazon and why it's so devastating, not only to Brazil and Latin America, but also to the world as far as this uh, incessant development and destruction of the rainforest. Yeah, so most of this so-called development that's going on is actually certainly not sustainable development. And if you do the economics of it, it's only a short-term gain. And then there's a long-term loss. So one of the big issues is 
A, that the Amazon makes half of its own rainfall, and that depends on forests and trees and leaves. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, so this amazing hydrological cycle that provides moisture for the forest, but also to every country in South America except for Chile. And it's gotten to the point where there's so much deforestation, it's really close to a tipping point where the southern and eastern forest will convert into grassland, into savanna from tropical rainforest. Yeah, and you can see how dry this land is, is right in front of us. It's now exposed to the sun. Uh, and also the transpiration you were talking about just can't happen when it's just, you know, dirt instead of having the uh, native trees there. So it's, and also going to illegal gold mining. Why is this so uh, dangerous and disastrous for the rainforest? So illegal gold mining happens all over the rainforest of the world and, and in other places too. And it's all driven by, at one level, very poor people who see it as a way to get ahead. But in fact, they live miserable lives. Uh, they basically only have double the income they would have had if they had stayed in their traditional uh, activities. Mm -hmm. And all the money is being made further up the economic food chain. Uh, and a lot of this is illegal gold that gets around the world and then ends up being sold in fancy jewelry stores. It's almost like the blood diamonds. Is that a good analogy? It is the exact equivalent to the blood diamonds. Right? So this, this and then you, mm -hmm. then you have the road you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So this is the first highway from Brazil through Peru to essentially ultimately the Pacific Ocean. And you know, when somebody builds a road like that, it, it makes a dent in the forest, but that's not the issue. The issue is what happens because suddenly people can get access to the forest and then you get all kinds of illegal logging, mm -hmm. uh, deforestation for raising cattle, which is really a pretty marginal activity. But when the land is free, you make some money. Uh, and so the worst thing you can do in the Amazon is just blindly build a highway. Far better to use the rivers as the transportation system, uh, which has served very successfully for centuries and millennia. Yeah, and the rivers, uh, when we looked at that map earlier, I mean, they're really going everywhere within the, the Amazon basin. So there's a few places you really can't get to. Uh, from there. But looking at the Amazon, and uh, we're going to look at some of the fires that are going on there. So what is happening to generate these fires in what's supposed to be a very moist uh, uh, rainforest? So it's actually a very interesting question that you ask, because lightning does not start fires in the tropical rainforest because it's too wet. But what has been going on is a synergy between the deforestation and the drying that it creates uh, and climate change and extensive use of fire to clear the land to raise cattle or uh, grow soybeans or something like that. So mm -hmm. 
uh, you have a, a negative synergy between those three and they've really brought the Amazon to the brink of the tipping point. Yeah, this is just amazing when you see these fires and uh, when you look at it from the satellites or you're flying over it, I mean, it's just, it goes beyond the horizon sometimes, all the burned lands that you see there. But getting to the, the howler monkey, how does that fit into the pandemic uh, when we're going in the 21st century? So one of the interesting things about uh, yellow fever, which used to be one of the great scourges of the world, mm -hmm. uh, is that there is a cycle that goes on in human settlements, which is easily controlled. You just control the breeding sites of the mosquitoes, but there's another cycle called jungle yellow fever, which is in the canopy of the rainforest, uh, principally with howlers, howler monkeys and other monkeys. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, it will move nomadically through and a bunch of dead monkeys will end up on the floor of the rainforest. But nobody could figure out how it got into people until somebody I shared an office with when I was a graduate student uh, named Jorge Bochel watched some woodcutters bring down a tree and suddenly they were surrounded with the little blue canopy mosquitoes which transmit yellow fever, uh, in that case, to people and normally to howler monkeys. So it's sort of the ultimate example of disturbing the environment and getting a pandemic going like this amazing map, which shows how rapidly the, the COVID-19 virus spread around the world. Yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. Tom, we're out of time. Where do you see for the spread of this in the future? And we have about 10 seconds to do that. So the answer is, in fact, in embracing nature, restoring nature, uh, and being much more sensible about the wildlife trade. Thank you very much. It's Dr. Tom Lovejoy. Thank you for being with us as we create the Emerald Planet. Looking at the globe and how we're going to be able to feed future generations. Right now, we have about seven and a half billion people on planet Earth. And by 2038, they said we should have about nine billion people, possibly 12 to 13 billion by the end of the century. And one of the rays of making sure that we actually have ample food stocks is to take care of the pollinators. And I have someone that's a true expert in this at George Mason University has an organization it's called the Business for a Better World. This is Lisa M. Gearing Pimble. She's associate professor in the College of Business, also the co-executive director of the uh, Business for a Better World. And also she has something very special. It's called the Honey Bee Initiative. It's absolutely amazing. And Lisa, welcome to the Emerald Planet TV. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about the business for a better world and how did it and get involved as far as the honeybee instant initiative. That's a great question. Uh, so the Business for a Better World Center formed at George Mason University when we realized that we as educators needed to do a much better job of preparing 
the next generation to reorient the business environment. We really believe that business should be a force for good in the world. And so we're looking at the sustainable development goals as our North Star and using mm -hmm. those to help us do things like lead a movement to reshape business education so that we're inspiring uh, people to go out and do business for a better world. And the Honeybee Initiative is part of the Business for a Better World Center. And for us, it really is part of our mission in that it helps us to think about models for how education and business can partner across sectors to address the global goals. Now, why the honeybee of all things? Uh, we're very much involved in the Emerald Planet uh, International Foundation with the monarch butterflies, which is another pollinator. But honeybees are absolutely critical and a linchpin for the food supply. So why study this as far as being in your uh, college of business? Yeah, we get that question a lot. How did we get bees in the business school? Um, <laughs> there's really at least three reasons. Um, the first is quite simply that our mission really is to address the global goals. And so the Honeybee Initiative allows us to address a wide variety of global goals around issues like economic empowerment, gender equity, food security. Uh, second, the Honeybee Initiative provides us with a model for how to address global goals through these cross-sector partnerships that we're, um, we, we believe so much um, are essential to the work that we do. And third, as you already alluded to, uh, bees are threatened and humans survive only if bees survive. Um, and the reality is, is that bees pollinate one third of the food that we eat. Without them, our Grocery aisles do not look abundant like the ones here. They actually look uh, decimated like the ones that I think are on one of the other slides. There it is. And it really has an impact on dairy products as well because bees pollinate the clover and alfalfa that the milk producing animals eat. And as a result, without bees, we're looking at a 50% reduction in milk products in the grocery stores. I'll, I want to go back to this image right here. So we're looking at all this fantastic produce. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and the bees are responsible for so much of this and, and other pollinators, of course. So when you're looking at the, the shopper, do they really understand the aspect of nature that really brings this to them? Or is this something that we have to learn so we don't end up with grocery stores that look just like this? Um, I think we have to learn it. Uh, I think back to my own childhood where recycling wasn't a thing. We just, we didn't know about recycling and there were all these education campaigns to recycle. And today it's ingrained in our DNA and there are recycling bins everywhere. I think the same thing has to happen with honeybees and other pollinators and people start to, to they, they've got to learn that they have a critical role to play in the preservation of pollinators. So it mm -hmm. starts with education. That's absolutely fantastic. Looking at the education and the students that you have at George Mason University, which is now reported to be the largest university in Virginia, uh, has a very high standing as far as research and development is concerned. How do you have and find students that really have an interest in bees? It's actually not a problem. Uh, we started with our first course uh, that had about 20 students in it, but it also had a 99 uh, student wait list, which was amazing. And so we've developed a variety of courses like sustainable beekeeping, in search of the perfect queen, 
the importance of the Amazon in the modern world. And these courses are available to students all across the university. And the exciting thing is other areas like our elementary educators are using the hives as a way to learn about pollination so that they can design lessons to put into the elementary schools. Mm -hmm. So all fields use our hives. Yeah, and this is something that we've been doing uh, through the natural partners uh, with the monarch butterflies. We have about 50 schools now and uh, about half of them have sister schools in Mexico where the monarchs hive and and uh, live over the winter time so it's amazing how you can use something like we're looking at right here as practical examples for education k-12 actually yeah and on that note i would say what's really exciting is in addition to the elementary school uh, students that are the elementary educators who are using the hives in the classrooms we have business students who are learning about uh, marketing and product development through the sale of honey and candles. We have a partnership with a local brewing company. We launched this honey ale called Patriots 57, which is named for the mascot of George Mason in 1957, the year it was founded. Our Sodexo chefs use it in salad dressing in the dining halls. Um, and so it's really exciting uh, what, what we're able to do uh, in this particular space. Now, looking at this up close and personal uh, vantage point, as far as uh, looking at honey, learning about the bees, and then also, of course, you're talking about uh, business and, and education and all this. So why are students so interested to have this kind of, you know, real personal involvement with the bees instead of just staying in class, using the computers and uh, doing their studies in the library? So I think what we've learned in the higher education field is that there are some best practices for learning and that learning takes place in the classroom, but it also takes place outside of the classroom and the experiences that we have. And those experiences are really powerful because they really solidify for the students the practical application of what they're learning in the classroom. And the neat thing, uh, the slides that we're running through here, the previous one was a stingless honeybee hive. And we work with those uh, in our work in Colombia and in the Peruvian Amazon. And what this allows students to do is really get a sense for the global issues, right? Sustainability isn't just something that happens in their community or at George Mason University or in Fairfax, Virginia. It happens globally. And what's happening globally impacts us here locally. And that's just a really powerful lesson when the students can go, they can interview beekeepers, they can talk to other small business owners like this project here is a trapiche farm, which is like a sugarcane mill. And they can learn about other practices for how other businesses are trying to implement sustainable practices in their industries. Now, looking at this uh, globally, this is something that, I mean, this is up close and personal in a, another country thousands of miles away. Why is that so important at George Mason University to have this international component, not only with your honeybees and the College of Business, but really it goes across every discipline that you have at uh, George Mason University? So the global initiative is really just embedded into our DNA as a university. That's one of the elements of our strategic plan is to make sure that we're providing students with global experiences. And again, it just goes back to this 
opportunity to be able to connect with people and disciplines and geographies that are different from our own and recognizing that it's only when you get all of these disciplines and geographies and people together that we can really effectively address the global goals. Now, looking at uh, this uh, photograph here and then moving on to this one, what do you think the students are really getting out of this, actually watching you know, real people living in this type of environment, uh, in this type of situation, and how they live very differently than we do, but yet they still live happy, productive lives? Yes, well, I think one of the lessons that we hope that they learn, um, so this actually slide is, is um, from Peru, and one of the things that we do in our um, all of our partnerships, whether it's Peru or Colombia or even here regionally in Fairfax County, is we have tri-sector, so across-sector partnerships, and we also use the materials that are natural to the region that we're working in. Because when you use the materials from this uh, Peruvian community, for example, to create the hives, harvest the honey, uh, bottle the honey, and sell the honey, you really ensure the longevity of the program. So I think the students, when they get involved and they see communities like that, they gain an appreciation for different perspectives, different worldviews. They gain an understanding of what it takes to make change happen in a community. They understand in the case of the Peruvian Amazon, for example, we go and say it's about bees, right, to the students. Mm -hmm. It's about much more than that. It's about rainforest conservation. We say it's about bees in Colombia, but really what it's about is economic uh, empowerment of rural women and their families. And so the bees spark other conversations. Yeah, looking at this, and then we're talking about uh, the, uh, the mascot and uh, naming back in 57 and all that. Uh, but going back here, how do you tie these two things together where they're actually creating their own beehives out of natural materials? And then the natural material here, of course, as far as the beverage, is uh, the honey as the link in both of these. So how do you transition from this into this with your students and they understand exactly where they're going for the future? So we talk a lot about creative intelligence as one of those skills that students need in order to thrive post-graduation. Mm -hmm. And so they constantly need to be looking at ways to see situations differently and solve challenges. And so, our mission with the Honeybee Initiative is to empower communities to use uh, through sustainable beekeeping. And what that looks like, uh, what that empowerment looks like, really depends on the community that we're in. So in Columbia, I said it was empowering women. Mm -hmm. In Fairfax County, where it's with a landfill, it's rehabilitating uh, a local landfill as a place where elementary students can come and learn about pollination and waste management. When we look about something with a local brewing company, it's about how can we get the message out about the importance of pollinators? Mm -hmm. And what's really neat about those beer cans is that they have the address of our website on it. And I'm not suggesting that everyone's gonna drink a beer and be Googling uh, the information, but it's a part of this, did you know how honey is so instrumental to everything that we do? Lisa, we're running out of time. So where do you see this going the next five, 10 or 15 years? And we have about 10 seconds to do all that. Growing, uh, expanding the reach and scope of our programs. And I just want to shout out and say that we're always looking for partners. And so if someone wants to learn more or discuss how we can do things together, please do reach out. 
This is Dr. Lisa Gearing-Pimble. Thank you from George Mason University as we create the Emerald Planet. Looking at the globe, the environment, economic development, and the communities, how do we bring balance so that people live in harmony and want to collaborate and cooperate with each other? That's what we're going to be discussing right now and how this actually ties together the three pillars of economic development, environment, and community development. This is Dr. Karina. Kodoristalina, she is a professor of conflict analysis, resolution, and psychology. She is also the co-director of the program for the prevention of mass violence at George Mason University. And Karina, welcome to the Emerald Planet TV. Thank you very much, thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work at George Mason University, but what is this program for the prevention of mass violence? I've not heard this particular term before, even though it does exist. So is this a, a new and emerging study and dynamic that's going on in university campuses these days? It is. It's um, uh, one of the major development in uh, pieces, uh, conflict and peace uh, uh, studies. Mm -hmm. And I'm representing the school. Now it's called School for Conflict Analysis and, and Resolution. Mm -hmm. But starting July 1st, I'm happy to share, we will be called Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. It's mm -hmm. a big honor for us to have name of President Carter. And uh, we really are devoted to prevention violence across the globe. And by violence, we do not mean only open violence. We also speak about cultural violence against different groups of populations and structural violence, which connected directly with economic development. And particular group of people are excluded from uh, opportunities, excluded from access to power and resources. And also we were talking earlier about how this directly relates to environmental violence and also environmental peacekeeping, uh, because that's really the core of many of these emerging countries is that they have large swaths of uh, open territory, uh, sometimes mass numbers of people there, sometimes very few. But at the same time, we have to bring about this balance between the ec economy and also environmental development. So how do we do this? And what is the, uh, let's go back to who is Jimmy and Rosalind uh, Carter? Uh, probably two thirds of the American population were not even born when they he was actually uh, in Washington, D.C. So who is he and why the School for Peace and Conflict Resolution? Uh, uh, Jimmy Carter was the president of the United States who uh, devoted uh, his life. I think the most, most important is for me is not only what the president is doing during this presidential time, mm -hmm. but also how they spend time after. Mm -hmm. their presidential uh, position. And uh, Jimmy Carter was extremely active. He had a uh, Carter Center, which was working across the globe for reduction of violence, building peace. So the legacy of him and his wife going 
in different countries addressing issues of environmental conflicts, violence. It's uh, honor become an honor for our school to be uh, named after him. Yeah, and the interesting thing about him, he actually was raised as a farmer, lived out his life as a farmer. He was also mm -hmm. a nuclear engineer, became president of the United States, was very much involved in politics. But actually, he's much more famous uh, afterwards with the Carter Center than he even was as president. Yeah, I agree with you. That's why it all for me is more important what he done. <laughs> yeah, looking at these uh, neighborhood associations, why are these so important, and how does this fit into uh, prevention of violence? But actually, more than that, is educating people to want to have peace and prosperity within their own communities, uh, their own nations on planet Earth, and to just avoid violence whatsoever. Yeah, this is very important. And what you see here is the logo of Neighborhood Associates Corporation, which I collaborated together now for six years. They came to us, to George Mason University, to our school, and they told, we're looking for somebody who really understands how to deal with violence. We need, really need to understand that violence not just going outside the United States, but many communities in the United States, even here, Washington DC, in Baltimore, in Arlington, and in Virginia, are really uh, are impacted by poverty, unemployment, drugs, and others. So they told, we want to look into community resilience. Now, and looking at uh, the community resilience, why is that so important? And how do you actually do that? One, by removing violence as much as possible but also give them the resources they need for resilience? Yeah, this is a very, very good question. Uh, the problem is that uh, there are a lot of misunderstanding of uh, that resilience constitute particular features or particular psychological uh, characteristics. This is, yes, we call this resiliency, but resilience is a process. And it's not just bouncing back after particular stress or particular problem. It's actually very adaptive. It has this opportunity not only to become uh, more and more uh, adaptive toward mm -hmm. new stresses, but also opportunity to manage risks and opportunities. So this is what really make resilience very important. And of course, there are a lot of criticisms. For example, neoliberal approach to resilience really move responsibility towards the community. Mm -hmm. And it's important for economic development because it says, yes, community have to be ready to address its own problems. But uh, if addressing this criticism, we can tell that in reality, it's yes, it is maybe a little bit, but it's also move production of knowledge mm -hmm. and production of power towards the community. So right. we give them agency, we give them voice, and it's mm -hmm. very important. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at this whole notion of resilience, what does this truly mean? We see the, the wind uh, turbine here, uh, the housing and all that. But what does this really mean as far as uh, getting down into the community itself and the interactions within the families and then among the various families within these different communities? Yes, what it's important to understand is that resilience is a collective phenomenon. 
you could not develop resilience of community without participation of many many uh, members mm -hmm. what my research actually was able me to show that in many previous studies the resilience of particular neighborhoods was considered as a some very homogeneous group mm -hmm. right so we go to neighborhoods there are community leaders and there are community but what i found that what really impacts resilience process is identity and power within community itself there are a lot of groups which have more power or more uh, legitimacy there are groups which completely excluded for example we found in our research that young fathers and male in particular mm -hmm. are less included in community resilience and majority of legitimacy go for people who live there for longest time and in many cases it's usually older women now looking at the communities that you're working with i believe in washington dc and other areas when you go into these communities who are you looking for to start working with identify the opinion leaders and those that truly understand the community how do you go through that process yeah this is a very important question because building trust with the community is the key you could not um, go into a community and tell okay i'm researcher i want to study you right it's it's not appropriate we really have to see them as a partner in research they you have to see that results will benefit them and then spending time with us answering questions that actually benefit them and not mm -hmm. us will just write a paper or something right so why um i was really really thankful that we were working with uh, neighborhood associates corporation and also university george mason university provides very good support for research by so-called oscar program it's program which allow undergrad students to participate in research Mm -hmm. together with faculty so i had wonderful students working with me on it and we started with a neighborhood associates corporation they have their uh, people working in these communities and they start, slowly we start building this uh, partnership and trust we didn't start come and tell okay we need people to ask questions mm -hmm. we started walking around and checking what's going on participating in the meetings a lot of observations and then slowly by snowballing, what we call snowballing in sciences, then we ask people, okay, we interview you, who do you think else we can interview? Mm -hmm. So we didn't go in usual approach for like only community leaders. We actually spoke with almost everyone. Yeah, and what you're doing is you're really uh, going in initially, establish trust, relationship, open communications, and then you're looking for different spheres of influence uh, regardless of the level within the society, because you want to know what is going on across you know, the whole society, not just parts of it, correct? Yes, absolutely. We want to see how community functions, what are limitations to this community, who excluded, who included. So it's it's very important to be able that not just interview leadership or those who leaders in, uh, recommend, but also be able to interview very unusual people who never had voice. And looking at this, let's go to this, the reduction of crimes, and we're just about running out of time, but why this type of effort? We're looking at these different communities, and I know where most of these are. Uh, how are you able to decrease the amount of violence in these areas? And we need to be quick. 
Yeah, so um, what is important is that in this approach to community resilience, we concentrate on community practices, not a particular discussion, but what community actually, what activities community develop, sustain, and change in this process. So community practices of resilience is the key because they change structure of conflict. For example, poverty, they create community gardens. They create uh, opportunities, for example, another structure of conflict, uh, co poverty connected with stress and depression. And we were very, very pleased to find a lot of community practices which increase self-esteem of community. For example, they even the poor people with level of poverty, they collect uh, some um, pens and another school uh, um, school uh, suppliers, and they mm -hmm. send them to Kenya. Right. So, uh, they name school by uh, their community organizer. So it's really increased self-esteem. At the same time, they work with police. It was very pleasant to see how they work with police, they invite police, sharing with them their community center, children. Mm -hmm. uh, we have about 10 seconds left. What do you see for the growth and expansion of this prevention of mass violence over the next five, 10 or 15 years? We have to be very quick. I believe the most important is understanding the agency of the people on the ground and give them voice and listen to them and help them to bring change which they believe should be bring into their community. Thank you, Karina, as we create the Emerald Planet. Looking at the future of the world, what we're trying to do is tie together technology and humans in a way that they can actually collaborate, communicate, and partnership as far as how we're going to bring about the balance of business, environment, and community development. And we need all the assets that we have to do this as we move through the 21st century. And I have someone that's going to be coming on and talking about this human-machine partnership, which is a very intriguing idea and something that's coming into the fore as far as discussion and open society, but not many people know much about it. This is Dr. Brendan Bannon. She is the Associate Professor in Structural Technology, the College of Education and Human Development at George Mason University. Also, she's the co-director of the Center for Human-Machine Partnerships. And uh, Brenda, welcome to the Emerald Planet TV. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much. Uh, we're glad to have you and tell us about the center. I mean, this is something that's very intriguing. You don't really hear much about humans and machines collaborating, uh, yet we see it in sci-fi. It's been in the movies, uh, you know, since the talkies actually, uh, black and white film. So why is this now becoming a major area of study at George Mason University? Well, human-machine partnerships is a new and transdisciplinary research field, and it relates to how to structure and optimize the relationship between humans and computational systems. And the Center for Advancing Human-Machine Partnerships uh, that we call CAMP, with an H, uh, that I co-lead with Dr. David Latanzi from Civil Engineering and Dr. Amarta Shihu from com the Computer Science Department, 
really uh, tries to examine that relationship and conduct research with different types of computational systems that partner with human beings in different types of, of settings. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about how that relates to first responders of all types, but it's really interesting that you have this human machine partnership, but you're really focusing uh, as far as the initial studies anyway, on first responders. Why first responders? Well, that's right, Sam. Uh, I've been working with first responder training, uh, particularly live simulation training context for the last several years. Uh, we've worked in different types of hospital environments in fire and rescue environments, uh, and just most recently in uh, active violence incidents or active shooter simulated environments. And these are very, very interesting types of uh, complex, dynamic human systems environments. So the, the computational systems that we decided to try out in a human machine type of partnership in, with first responders involve sensors, wearable sensors and in-building sensors that would basically collect and feed us different types of data uh, in real time during those first responder live simulation training exercises. And the data from those exercises, uh, we tried to show kind of like an instant replay back to the first responders so that the, the mobile behavioral analytics that they would, uh, they would basically view and visualize could help their learning process. Now, looking at this as far as strategic goals, they're talking about humans and machines, uh, looking at the dynamically learning from each other and then building trust and ethical conduct. Now, how do you do that in machines and, and how do humans have the respect or the ways to honor a machine that says this is somebody or something that can be trusted and will actually deal in ethical conduct? Well, the way we do it is through uh, thinking about human-centered design or a co-design relationship with the first responders. So they help us define from the very beginning what are the most important metrics, how the, the computational system might be able to help them in their process. And they help us by actually uh, reviewing it, trying it out, giving us feedback and testing it. So they are involved all along in a human-centered design process. So that is how we begin to sort of address the ethics of what is most important to the audience who will be using that system. And along the way, that engenders trust because the first responders then have a better understanding of what this computational system is doing whether it's a sensor-based system or a robotic system, uh, because they are co-designers of the system with us. Now, looking at this, uh, I guess this word spaghetti and all this that we're talking about, uh, mm -hmm. how do you sort through all of this and make sure that there's a balance between the humans and the machines? Or is this something that actually evolves over time so that the machine literally is learning about the humans, the humans are learning about the machine, and then they try to collaborate to come up with a unified policy or a unified response 
or a way that actually first responders can handle situations that are very stressful, but also quite dynamic. Right. So that dynamic and evolving and adaptive adaptivity uh, between the humans and the machines is really the type of interaction that we are most interested in. And so uh, being able to try out things and look at uh, this, this design from many different perspectives. Um, we have faculty members who work together from machine learning, from artificial intelligence, from learning sciences, from humanities, from public policy, in ethics, and having different viewpoints on these types of systems throughout the research process and the R&D process really helps us to be sensitized to uh, what is what is really a perspective that needs to happen, that there needs to be trust, there needs to be transparency, there needs to be uh, authenticity to, to the activity that's going on, and really examining that interaction between the humans and the system uh, and, and working through that iteratively so that we all can understand what the technology system is doing, how it's in, informing the human system, and then reciprocally, how the human system may be reinforming the technology system. So in that way, it, it's reciprocal uh, and can engender trust if there are multiple perspectives and multiple uh, uh, inputs and insights into the building of this system. So when you're looking at this, this interactive system that we have right in front of us, it's quite complex, but yet still very straightforward. But how do you have humans that are sensitized so they actually look at this machine as really being helpful to them, not just as a tool, as you have a hammer or a saw or a steering wheel in a truck or something like that, but it goes way beyond that where this machine may actually save your life uh, help you to save the lives of others and at the same time to make you more comfortable and uh, more empowered to do your work. How do you do that in this type of uh, what we would say is kind of a closed loop system? Well, we do it in an iterative process uh, where we try things out and some things work and some things don't uh, and we get feedback and we try it again. Uh, and so the first responders are really trying to see a common operating picture or a common frame of reference in when they walk into an emergency situation, for example, or their leadership uh, is really, uh, you know, there may be fire and police all in, in, in EMS all in one situation. And having a common operating picture and being able to all be on the same page and operating with the same types of data sources that are visualized in the best way possible might allow for uh, an enhanced emergency response, meaning uh, might drop the response time or save someone's life by being able to understand the building or understand where the first responder teams are, understand uh, in real time where the victims are. Uh, so these are, these are the types of things that the first responders can actually have a common operating picture and view through visualization. And that, uh, that view can help engender some trust and, and being able to see the, the common picture uh, across the leadership in order to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at this uh, point here, teamwork, collaboration, uh, co-adaptation, mutual trust. 
-hmm. building that trust. How do you go about doing that when uh, humans are saying, well, we created the machines. Of course, we're going to be better than uh, the machines are going to be. And at the mm -hmm. same time, there are things that we can actually learn from the machines that really goes beyond just the creative process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it, it, it is human centric in that uh, humans can override machines and uh, humans actually can lead and should lead. However, there and humans need to understand what the computational system is and how it works and uh, the assumptions that are made with it. And, but if, if that is actually paid attention to through the process, uh, it ends up being a more trusted system. So with the humans and robotics, for example, um, there, there are many different types of data that can be collected by computational system, large amounts of data uh, that can do what humans can't do, is process large amounts of data in, in a short amount of time, in a very quick turnaround. Um, yet humans looking at that data, they really need to be the ones who make the decisions and be able to override decisions and um, and monitor decision making. So um, you know, let the computational systems do what they're good at, let the human systems do what they're good at with higher level critical thinking. Um, but more informed information can help first responders, particularly uh, with more data that's that's given to them in an understandable way. And that's really the hardest part. <laughs> Yeah. And the whole thing about it is that at the end of the day, everybody wants to go home and uh, <laughs> the ones that are being victimized or uh, facing a natural disaster or human made disaster, whatever it is, everybody wants to go home at the end of the day. So exactly. looking at this and we're just about out of time, how do everybody, as we see here, getting ready to go into a very dangerous situation, uh, the interaction between humans and machines, how does everyone go home, including the machine? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Well, um, the photo you're looking at right now is really was was a live simulation training active shooter exercise. We're running out of time. In, in our Eagle Bank arena. And the way that we think people can go home and systems can actually be preserved is to be able to uh, allow first responders to familiarize themselves with these types of technologies and help have input so that uh, they can learn and adapt and get used to seeing different forms of information that could help them first in the, in the simulation arena and then eventually in the operational environment. That's absolutely fantastic. We're going to go out on this. This is uh, Dr. Uh, Brenda Bannon from George Mason University on the Center for Human Machine Partnerships. Thank you for being with us as we create the Emerald Planet. <music>